uh, and they say, look, Stephen, long before I achieved this big, extraordinary thing, earlier in my life, I achieved something much smaller. You might find a 0.1% improvement most of the times, but then you'll find something that might be actually a 10% improvement. Focus on solutions. Expect obstacles to appear. They'll appear for everyone. Don't take it personally. You're not unlucky. That's just the way it is. Uh, and the last continuously improve a tiny little bit, but over a long period of time. So, Steve, we were talking about the four main things that you focus on in your book. And yeah. one of the most important things is the final piece of the puzzle, which is continuous improvement. How yeah. do you encourage and teach people to continuously improve a small bit at a time? Yeah, well, that was the... I mean, we mentioned on one of the calls, um, Atomic Habits, a great book uh, by James Clear. And I was rereading that recently. And what I noticed was, so I wrote the book, Brilliant Mondays. I thought these are the four key things. After the book went out, after I started delivering talks, I could see continuous improvement is where the real magic is at. It's what separates those who have a big vision, uh, those who achieve it and those who don't. James Clear in his book, Atomic Habits, he makes the point that okay, everybody who qualifies for the Olympic Games has the same vision. It's to win gold. And they're all very committed to it. They all have a clear, exciting vision. But what separates those who get to the very, very top and those that don't quite is their ability to continuously improve a small amount over a long period of time. So after the book came out, my book, um, and I'm delivering these talks, I started to read more and more about continuous improvement, I came across this word Kaizen. It's a Japanese word, and it means change for the better, change for the good. And it's all about small, tiny improvements, but, but built upon over a long period of time. So Jap it's, it's a Japanese word Kaizen, but the origins of it actually go back to America. It was around, I think, 1941, 42, when the Americans realized that they were going to have to enter World War II. What happened was, you have all these men working in these factories and they had to leave the factories, go overseas to Europe to fight in the war. Now, their jobs in the factories were filled by the women. And it didn't matter what they were building in these factories. It could have been cars, uh, could have been anything, right? But what they, they were quickly converted into factories where they were making stuff for the war effort. So it could have been army tanks, airplanes, uh, guns, weapons, bombs, all these things. Um, very dangerous conditions that the women were working in. Um, you know, lots of gunpowder, was lots of explosions, lots of lives lost. But there was a man called Edward Deming, an American economist. He was put in charge of, uh, he was given the responsibility of trying to uh, create improvements in how these factories were run. And he said to the ladies, look, there's no time for us to come up with innovative new weapons or machines. We don't, we don't have the time. What we have to do is we have to improve on the existing weapons and, and, and machines that we have. And he said, it's incumbent on every lady on this factory floor, and there could have been thousands on any individual floor, to try and come up with some tiny little improvements. It doesn't matter what level you're working on. You're responsible for trying to come up with tiny improvements. And he gave them a daily question to ask of themselves. And the question was, what small step could I take to improve the product or the process? They had to ask that of themselves every single day. And they were encouraged to write down little improvements and stick them into a box that would be read every day. Now, 
you have to remember motivation was extremely high, right? They, they want really desperately needed to win this war. Plus these ladies, you know, they realize the better weapons and machines that they can send over to Europe, right? The greater the chance of the men who they loved coming back alive. So motivation was sky high. Talked about earlier on in the resilience section, having a very compelling reason why. And a very compelling reason why they implemented this strategy over the next two or three years, there was massive improvements in the in the in the weapons and the, the the guns and the machines and all that sort of stuff. Now, during World War II, the Americans essentially flattened Japan. They had these B twenty nines and they were able to fly from I think it might have been Saipan or Guam, uh, but they would fly they would fly over Japan, just drop bomb after bomb after bomb. As part of the rebuilding efforts, the Americans had to stay and help the Japanese rebuild their economy. It wasn't lost on the Japanese how superior the American weapons and guns and planes and tanks were. And they asked, you know, how are your weapons so much better than ours? And they were told about this guy, Edward Deming, and how he'd implemented this continuous improvement strategy at the factories. They asked, could Deming come and train their business leaders? So from around maybe 1949 to when he died in 1993, Edward Deming was back and forth to Japan, helping um, train their leaders in continuous improvement. The Japanese gave it the word Kaizen. They made a part of their culture, and it's still part of the culture, the business culture there uh, to this day. They implemented it with Toyota, Sony, all these big companies that we see, they made a part of their culture. Using Kaizen, the Japanese were able to go from being just a, a decimated economy, a country in rubble, to being economic powerhouses by the mid-1980s. And it was by applying this continuous improvement strategy, what they called Kaizen, tiny improvements over a long period of time. I mean, you called it the Kaizen zone. So when you say Kaizen yeah. zone, what do you mean by zone? Yeah, well, great, great intro there. Um, so I was, I was reading about Kaizen. And uh, it's all about small, tiny improvements. And I thought, okay, so you're you're leaving your comfort zone, right? But you're not pushing yourself so far to you end up in your panic zone. And I had that thought, and I, I thought to myself then about this drawing that I'll show I'll hold up here. Uh, you can have a look at it, and I'll just describe it for because I'm sure most people are listening. It's three concentric circles. Now, I wouldn't know what a concentric circle was before I I came up with this drawing, but a concentric circle, if you imagine a dartboard, so you've got the bullseye as the center circle, then outside you have the 25 points. What's that called? You know, do you know what the name of that is? I haven't a clue. Okay, so the 25. I'm, never, I'm not usually that close to it. Okay, yeah, me neither. Yeah, I'm usually on the wall beside it. <laughs> um, and then, so you imagine the 25, whatever point uh, circle is, and if there's, imagine there's one just outside that as well. So the way I have this drawing is the bullseye would be the comfort zone. Now, I kind of make, maintain the point, look, in most areas of our life, being in your comfort zone is fine. Okay, good enough is good enough in most areas of our life. We'll cover some of that examples later. But what happens is, so we have the comfort zone. Outside that, we have the Kaizen zone. We have the panic zone. So people are in the comfort zone. And eventually, there are areas of our lives where we want to improve. The, the perfect example would be every January. Everybody's been eating and drinking for a couple of months in uh, you know, November, December, put on a bit of weight, out of shape, and everybody goes, that's it, I've had enough of this. 
and they try and overhaul everything overnight, right? They go from eating absolute rubbish to kale salads. They're uh, working themselves out like a dog in the gym, even though I haven't trained in ages. And what happens is they end up in their panic zone. They are so far away from the baseline of what their body is used to that all hell breaks loose. You know, the body starts to break down. In the comfort zone, you burn out, you get injured, people become stressed and anxious. Uh, all these sort of fight-flight uh, chemicals are released in the body. and uh, It's doing everything it can to force you back into the comfort zone. And that's what happens. Go into gyms in February and people who were there killing themselves in January are no longer there. The body has convinced them to get back into the comfort zone through various different uh, sort of mechanisms. But I contend that there's a better way. So just outside the comfort zone is the Kaizen zone. That would be on a dartboard, sorry, the 25, okay. the 25 point mark. And what I say here is that when we're in the Kaizen zone, growth and progress is sustainable over a long period of time. And that's what we want. That's what helps people improve. And uh, so we got to diligently implement it. So I have this second drawing. And this is, again, the, the same sort of circles. But you can just see there's a, a line here that uh, sort of goes from just out, just inside the comfort zone, straight through the Kaizen zone and just barely into the panic zone. And I say that that's the sweet spot for improvement. So to be oscillating along this line is where we want to be occasionally we'll have to go into our panic zone. Okay, occasionally, but we don't want to be there for too long because it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. Occasionally we have to just retreat back into the comfort zone, maybe to recover and recuperate, but we want to spend as much of our time in the Kaizen zone as possible. So ultimately, this third sort of drawing, and it just shows a sort of a similar drawing, but what you find is... Um, there's two separate concentric circle sort of units here. And what you, what you see is when we're in the Kaizen zone for long enough, what happens is our comfort zone grows, becomes much, much bigger. And things that used to be really, really difficult for us is now within our comfort zone. I was When I was preparing this morning, I was, I was thinking of an example of this. Uh, so I do a lot of public speaking. Um, I've done hundreds and hundreds of, of talks now uh, in the last few years. And... It still requires you to be at the sort of top of your game. I kind of liken every speech to playing a football match or any kind of sporting match. Just before kickoff, you get a little bit nervous. And you're like, okay, we got to do this, right? But years ago, when I first had this idea of uh, maybe giving talks in schools or companies, uh, the idea was absolutely terrifying to me, uh, paralyzing. And I used to drive by my old secondary school, and I thought that would probably be one of the first places I'll be able to convince to let me give a talk. And I drive past as I come back from the gym and my stomach would drop the thoughts of me having to go in to give a talk, right? Now, the idea of me going in to give a talk there now, I wouldn't say it's easy. I'd have to, I'd prepare meticulously as I do for everyone, but it, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal because my comfort zone has grown so much. Um, so, uh, when you yeah, think about it, sorry, when you think about yeah. the continuous improvement, the first thing you kind of think of is kind of like um, an upward trend. You know, we, we, we see a lot of the time losing yeah. weight and it's up and down. And it's never linear, never linear. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like the opposite way. We're going up the way. And the first thing I thought of when you said like maybe going to the gym in January for too long is kind of like a, a, a rapid spike. 
but then a rapid decrease. And like, if you yeah. think of it like stocks or something, you could zoom in on a stock and be like, okay, this is a bad stock, it's going down. But if you go, that could be just a day or a week. If you zoom yeah, out, yeah. let's say, you know, yeah. S&P 500, Five you zoom years. out for long enough and yeah. you just have a small improvement and you might regress sometimes because you're in a panic zone and you zoom out, uh, it doesn't seem like big steps. When you look back and you see five years ago where you were like yourself in the comfort zone yeah. or whatever, it now seems like massive changes, but on on a minuscule scale, on a day to day scale, it's only small changes. Well, you, you exactly, and it's a brilliant point. And for one of the things that I try and emphasize and 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 make the point is, people, when you get to an area where you want to improve, and you go, I know I can do better, you know, um, we're very enthusiastic, and that's part of our downfall. Is we we need to accept that. Uh, if you haven't been to the gym, if you've been eating rubbish, you have to accept I'm not very fit. My body is not built. I, I, I'll give you a quick example and come back to this. I was in the gym in January and I work out regularly. And I went in and there was a class going on and I got into a, a cross trainer for about 25 minutes. There was a lady there who was working out in one of these classes. She was a bit older, a bit overweight. I'd never seen her before. But I was in the cross trainer and she was giving it everything she had. And I thought fair play to her, really admired the effort she was putting in. And I spent maybe 25 minutes on this um, cross trainer. And then I said to myself, right, I'll go down and do about 10 minutes on the bench press. And that'll be enough for me. I could see across this lady was still working out. The class was going on when I arrived. It was still going on. Uh, just as I was about to leave, I could see that that class had ended. And this lady was now walking past me with a mat to go into another class. And I thought she hasn't got a hope. She is going to be crippled tomorrow. And I think part of Kaizen uh, and staying out of the panic, we need to be humble enough to accept where we actually are and say to ourselves, if I really want to get fit, I need to start out small, even though I'm enthusiastic and I want to do it overnight. Uh, And again, it comes down to sort of, the chemicals that are being released in our bodies, you know, it's um, it's too much too soon. The, the ligaments aren't used to it. You're going to get yourself injured. It's going to feel terrible. If you go to a gym, if I go to a gym and I do a good session, I'll leave feeling really good, right? Because I'll, I'll only go just a little bit above my sort of ability. But if I was to go in and kill myself, I wouldn't enjoy it. I'd be crippled tomorrow. I wouldn't make a, a positive connection to uh to the gym whereas by slowly progressing uh and i'll mention the bench press in a second again by slowly progressing i'm seeing the progress i'm feeling good about myself and uh, i know that after implementing kaizen if i do it slowly over a long period of time it'll take me to incredible places it's sustainable as well like it's gotta be it's like a diet what's the point of doing a crazy crazy diet if you can do it for two weeks because you're not going to see the results and i think another point and it kind of relates to what you're talking about with the classes there is that we often compare our own progress to other people. So like we have to, we think we have to be in the red zone or the, the danger zone and uh, the panic zone, sorry, so yeah. much. We need to do way more than we, we can do because we need to yeah. catch up with someone else where they might have been doing this for five, 10 years. So we are overextending yeah. ourselves when they're just doing a small bit and we think we need to catch up. But if we, we kind of be, we have to be on our own journey. Yeah, and we need to we need we need to be fair with ourselves and just realize, you know, to and this is in it's not just the gym. That's an example I think a lot of people can connect to. Um, but ultimately, 
if we're in our own individual Kaizen zone, it's not about, um, you know, if this is my comfort zone in fit, you know, this might be my comfort zone in, I don't know, or say speaking Irish, but somebody else, this <laughs> is their comfort zone. But for me, you know, the gym, that might be my comfort zone, but that might be their comfort zone. And it's just about growing our own comfort zone. And uh, by doing that, by staying in the Kaizen zone. So uh, I'll give you, I'll give you a quick example. So we want to be, as often as possible, we want to be on the boundary of what we can and can't do. So when you want to try and get yourself into the comfort zone, our Kaizen zone, whatever it is what we're doing, we need to do a bit of trial and error to try and find where is our where is our comfort zone, where is our panic zone, where is our Kaizen zone. So a, a quick example, I there's a guy called Anders Ericsson, and he's the world's leading expert in the field of expertise. Uh, he died actually last year, quite young, so very sad. Um, but he's talked about, you know, he spent 30 years studying people who've reached the top of their field. One of the things he's tried to find are people who are gifted, right? Just gifted and go, oh, they're just gifted. Um, he's found very few examples. And I think we mentioned it the last day, um, you know, with the few exceptions of maybe physical attributes might help you in sport. There's very few examples of people being naturally gifted. And we look, this is what we do is when we, uh, look at maybe somebody like Katie Taylor or Ed Sheeran or Rachel Blackmore, the, the jockey. We look at them and go, well, they must be just innately gifted in those particular fields. Anders Ericsson says they're not gifted. There is a gift, but it's a gift that we all share. And I think this little example will really highlight it. Uh, Anders Ericsson, he was a professor at the University of Florida. And what he wanted to do was to try and test the capacity of the short-term memory. Okay, so what he did was he had a student called Steve Falloon will come into his office twice a week and they would do hour-long sessions. So they're trying to test the capacity of the short-term memory. They were going to give Steve a string of digits. So they might give him a string of six digits at one second interval. And uh, Steve got that correct. They'd go up to a string of seven digits. If you got that correct, they'd go up to a string of eight digits. If you got that correct, they go to nine. But if you got, say, nine digits wrong, they would go back to two. Or they'd go back to seven. They'd go back two to seven, right? As he worked his way up, if he was maybe able to get 12 correct, uh, if he got 13 wrong, they'd go back to 11. So they're always working on the boundary of what Steve could and couldn't do. Now, at the time, um, they, could, they say the average person can remember – uh, six or seven digits in their short-term memory fairly well. They believed back then that the capacity of the short-term memory maybe could be about 15 to 16 digits. After a year and a half of these sessions, Steve was able to get up to 82 digits. That was the longest he, he remembered. Uh, let me just come out of this because I have it on my thing. I have the 82 digits here. I want to read you half of it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Steve's this is given to him at one second intervals, right? Now remember, um, Steve really struggled, by the way, in the beginning to get past six or seven. He he struggled at 12 digits, real plateau. He struggled at 22. But by staying on the boundary of what he could and couldn't do, they're able to get him up to 82 digits. But I'll read you half of this. So it's zero, three, two, six, four, four, three. Four, four, nine, six, zero, two, 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 one, three, two, 
820930. Well, that's not that's about a quarter of it. I think that's probably enough to to give us a good example there. Um, I got six, I think. Zero three two six four four. That's it. <laughs> yeah, but what show that's ideal. That's what most people can keep. You know, six or seven. But with training, and but the critical thing was. They always stayed on the boundary of what Steve could and couldn't do. And he started to develop techniques as he went along as to how he'd remember some of this stuff. Uh, a lot of it was to do with pictures. He would maybe picture a tree and he'd have branches and leaves and he would stick the numbers on those. And he seemed to be able to recall that. Now, what they did was they replicated this. So what, this is one of the things is that we would go, well, hang on. Maybe Steve was just exceptionally gifted at remembering numbers, right? Now, it doesn't appear that that was the case because Steve struggled to get past six and seven, like the average person initially. He plateaued all along the way. And what Anders Ericsson contends is that the gift that Steve has and the gift that we all have is the extraordinary adaptability of the body and the brain to change and improve under the right conditions. And he said that when you look at people like Katie Taylor, Ed Sheeran, Rachel Blackmore, people who look like they're naturals in their field, he said they've taken advantage of adaptability more than the rest of us. And that's the real thing. And we, I think we use the word natural or natural ability as a bit of an excuse and an escapism from maybe they just work really hard. Yeah, but not it's not even just hard, Stephen. So we'll come up to some of the techniques that we can use. But I, I go back to this drawing that I had. And I have this, this sweet spot, right, where they're oscillating along the line, right, in Kaizen, just barely in the comfort zone, along Kaizen, they're just barely in the panic zone maybe at times, right? But then I've changed this after sort of learning a bit about Anders Ericsson's work is what we're doing on that line is we are triggering adaptability, that's what we're doing. We're actually in the Kaizen zone. Now, triggering adaptability, a couple of examples, because there's a lot of myths that we have in our mind. There's a lot of stuff that's sort of sold to us about naturals, about um, gifted, genius, all this stuff. Um, I've been to two things, talk about the bench press. I don't think I mentioned it on, on camera, but um, so I've gone to the gym a lot, but I noticed, and even though I was a fitness instructor, a few years ago, or many years ago, um, I still go in and aimlessly sort of tip along doing the same sort of sessions, sessions and just same level of ability. And I was thinking recently, I'm gonna, I want to get back to being able to bench 100 kilos. I, I've, I've done it years ago, but I haven't benched 100 kilos in maybe 10 years. And I would hover around my one rep max, sort of naturally just tipping along, would be around um, 80, 85, um, around there. And so what I did was I decided, right, I'm going to try and apply Kaizen to the, to this. So I benched, I stood a bit of bench, did a good warm-up. I uh, had somebody help me out when I was doing the one rep max, but I was able to get 85. I was able to bench 85 once. Now, I think if I pushed myself that day, I would have got to 87 and a half. Usually you go up in uh, two and a half kilo increments because that's the sort of smallest plates you can get, right? So... I did that. I did a, I got the one rep max. Then I did a tough session on my chest and I took nearly a week to recover. I went back, was able to bench 87 and a half right now. Um, went back the week later, I was able to bench 90. Now 90, I've probably have got to in the last couple of years. Right. But then I went back the week after and I aimed for 92 and a half and I got it. 
right? Then I went back 90, 95. I'm up to 97 and a half now. So I'm nearly at 100. And it hasn't been difficult. It's been easy. But I've been very mindful. I, I mentioned as well, uh, one of the days I was saying, right, I'm going to go bench on Wednesday. But when Wednesday arrived, I was like, my chest still hasn't fully recovered. And for me, I think in, in some ways to go back um, or not fully recovered would be to put my body into the panic zone. It hasn't fully healed, hasn't recovered. So um, I've applied that with the bench, bench press, just almost as a little trial. Now, I have my guitar over there. I've played the guitar for over 20 years. And for somebody who's, and I play it nearly every day. It's like meditation. I tip away in it. But for somebody who's played the guitar for 20 years, I would say I'm very average because it's mindless stuff that I do. I just tip around. I play a bit of this song, a bit of that song. I enjoy it. It's fun, right? But I never do um, what would be called a skill stretching uh, exercise. So there's a song I was having a look at there recently, Coldplay, uh, not Coldplay, um, Snow Patrols Chasing Cars. Great song. Right? Now, the finger picking, just two elements. There's uh, what your left hand is going to do, holding the strings down to make chords. And there's the finger picking, right? The finger picking is easy, right? Because I'll play around the same few chords. I'm, I play at a party. Um, the average Joe probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference, you know, between me and a really good guitar player. They'd probably be like, they're both very good. Whereas I'd be like, that's a good guitar player, not me. Uh, but I play the same few things over and over again. But the, the sort of position that I'd have to have my fingers in on the, on the fretboard to play this car, Chasing Cars song, it's outside my comfort zone, right? My fingers aren't able to stretch into those positions very easily. It's difficult. It's not enjoyable. It's not enjoyable like I just fiddle around the guitar. Um, and I have no vision to become a professional musician. So I don't be pushing myself doing these. I just go, oh, forget it. And, but that's fine. That's fine. But it just shows me playing the guitar for 20 years, playing it every day for a few minutes, doesn't make me really, really good. What makes you really, really good is stretching your abilities constantly. My fingers, if I practice enough, my fingers would be able to, they would adjust, they would adapt. They become more flexible. They'd be able to contort into those positions. Uh, it'd be, it's more to do with the signals of the brain sending them. Um, but we'd, I'd get there easily enough if I had the motivation. I think well, you just reminded me of something when you said your fingers would stretch and change is that when yeah. I teach uh, in school about um, inherited characteristics and yeah. um, not applied, inherited and acquired, right? Yeah. So I always use the example, like, let's say playing a guitar. Could have that could that baby could come out of the womb playing the guitar? People just think that they're naturally good at something that, well, their brain knows how to do it. No one's brain knows how to play football or play guitar when they're in the womb. Every one of them t things, techniques are learned after. And it's only it's usually around influences, as we say, yeah. who's around you and who's, who's pushing you like, again, yeah. I'm not saying I don't know much, but I'm not saying that, like, if you went to a family gathering and they were all playing music and um, you yeah. probably push yourself a small bit more and improve a small bit more. So it's about, well, what's your why? We talked about it a, a, a while ago. What's your why? And 
are you being pushed into that kaizen zone are you just and as you said it's perfect for some things to be in that comfort zone it's, it's the things that you want to focus on and actually improve it and again what you talk about i i i kind of i completely agree with you i've I, even if there is genetic sort of advantages which i i haven't seen any real evidence of um like for example Maybe somebody will be born tall because they have a tall parent, right? But I don't think somebody's able to play the guitar better because their parent played the guitar. You know, exactly. I don't, I don't really think. I, I think environment is is much more important. The fact that they will be exposed to it, the fact that uh, if daddy plays the guitar and daddy loves the guitar, you're going to get a lot of attention if you're playing the guitar. You're going to get a lot of approval from your parents. And again, it's about uh, tribal uh, approval as well. If you go to the family gathering and you can play a few songs, if that's what's held up within that family. And we mentioned it as well in uh, maybe China, where uh, if you go to mathematics and science is held up in this esteem as what we might have footballers and actors in the Western world. So uh, I think those are factors. I'll give you a quick example as well, just in terms of Kaizen, just some of the ways that I try and put myself into into the Kaizen zone. I interviewed uh, a guy called Jerry Duffy, and he's in the continuous improvement section um, of the book. Super guy. Um, Jerry, when he was 27, 27 years of age, he kind of let himself go. Wasn't exercising, wasn't training. He was smoking a lot, smoking up to 60 cigarettes a day. Um but it wasn't until he got his picture taken with his hero, Sevi Ballesteros, the great Spanish golfer, when this photograph was developed. And I'll just give you the gist of Jerry's story. This photograph was developed. Jerry, he was sort of horrified at his appearance. Now, he's not, he's not that out of shape. But we need to remember as well is we all have different sort of standards as to what we want for ourselves. Um, so Jerry was horrified. He bought a new pair of runners and he got up and he ran a three mile loop around his house. And that was the first bit of exercise you kind of done in years. Now, over the course of the next 10, 15 years, Jerry turned himself into a world-class athlete, world-class endurance athlete. He ran 32 marathons in 32 days. He completed 10 Ironmans in 10 consecutive days in, in a, like a world-class field and won that event. He's run 100 miles in 18 hours, right? He's done extraordinary things. And when you think about where he came from, being really out of shape, totally inactive, eating rubbish, smoking loads of cigarettes, to go from there to being a world-class endurance athlete. You know, the big question I had for Jerry was, how did you do it, Jerry? You know, how did you go from here to here? And he said, I look to improve 1% every time I trained and performed. Go right back to that day when I did that first three-mile loop around my house. He said, when I got home, I asked myself, how could I be just 1% better? And he said, and I asked myself that question, Every single time I trained since then, he wasn't looking for a 20% improvement or 50% improvement. It was always a tiny 1% improvement. And I kind of maintain just with this drawing again, you know, Jerry is probably so just barely outside his comfort zone, just barely in his Kaizen zone when he was training. But he was there for so long that over the years, it had added up to something really extraordinary, you know. And um, that's just one of them, um, you know, one of the examples, you know, in – yeah, we hear about this one percent improvement idea all the time, but it absolutely works. And when when you see that come to fruition, you kind yeah. of realize, hold on, this is working. And absolutely. The, the kind of overextension of your ability 
again we said it doesn't take too long for you to get burnt out and probably not see the results you think you're probably supposed to get more results than you should yeah. i know especially fitness is such an easy example people go to the gym for a month and they say like why don't i look like they watch you know i've yeah. putting all yeah. this effort in but kind of links back to the four parts of the book where we talk about vision and mainly long-term vision if yeah, we yeah. have that we're not rushing yeah. ourselves we could just all improve a small bit what I, what I find is if you are prepared to accept that it'll take time, you're prepared to push yourself a little bit more as you progress to stick to a plan. What happens is change and progress happens a lot quicker than we expected. If we're prepared to be a bit more patient, uh, just a couple of myths as well, when it comes to improvement, you know, one is that we have like a genetic threshold, you know, that, that, Oh, I don't want to, people say to me, what if you push yourself really hard and you don't quite make it or you just don't, you stop improving? There is no real genetic threshold. There's no evidence of it. Um, second thing that I admit is that time equals improved performance. It doesn't. It really doesn't. The, the guitar is an example. The, the guitar is an example. Another example is driving. You know, I'm driving over 20 years. And there is an initial uh, learning curve, but what happens is we get to acceptable level of performance and then we just keep doing the things that we're doing the same way. And like another 15 years of driving doesn't seem to improve your performance very much. Um, Nearly go backwards and if anything, you kind of said standards. Doctors, doctors, uh, studies to back this up, doctors peak five years after they've qualified and then they slowly decline in performance. Because that's Slowly the standards are accepting. I, I I don't know if I said it in our podcast or was it another one that you won't rise your expectations. Again, our expectations could be go to the gym for four weeks and we dream body. You fall to your your standards. So if you're only improving one percent every day, but you're doing the right things, well, they're the standards you've got to be at. If you just expect everything that's going to go well, well if you expect to get better at driving, you're not going to. Well, there's, th- there's things that we can put in place and they call them uh, lead measures rather than lag measures. So if you say, every time I finish playing the guitar, I'm going to ask myself, how could I have been 1% better? That's a lead measure. A lag measure would say in two months time, I want to learn uh, 10 new songs, right? In two months time, come, you go, oh, I didn't learn them. Whereas a lead measure is something you can bring back and go, if I do these things on a daily basis, these lead measures, I will be able to play those songs. So uh, last kind of myth would be that structureless effort, right? Uh, you know, I'm going to work really, really hard, but in a structureless way that that will in- lead to improved performance. I can tell you from my own experience playing as a young footballer with, again, no real sort of high level coaching until I was maybe 15 that, you know, you, you need sort of outside guidance. You need some sort of coaching, and and you need to put your effort into to that sort of stuff, you know, rather than just I'm going to push, 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 push. You could be doing the same thing wrong over and over again. So just to sort of uh, hit, hit home again on the acceptable level of performance, right? we reach acceptable level. That's good enough is good enough in most areas of life right now. Golf is a good example. You know, people take up golf. And they get to a level where they're good enough to play with their friends without annoying them. Well, I play a lot of golf and somebody's terrible. It's, it's not fun to play with them because it takes too long. Um, but you get good enough, same with tennis, same with driving. You know, if you can get from A to B safely, that's good enough. 
you know, uh, handwriting as well. If it's legible, somebody can figure out what it is. Fine. There's, there isn't that many benefits these days to having fancy handwriting. Okay, so acceptable level of performance is, is good enough in a lot of areas. But in areas where we want to really improve, that we need to put some structures in place. So for me, say the guitar, and I have started to apply a little bit of Kaizen to it. Um, I need to have sort of more skill stretching practice sessions. Again, where I go, right, this is beyond my ability. And for example, that Snow Patrol song, what I need to do is slow it down slow it down and maybe try and get my fingers into those positions a couple of times a day as well and accept that over a period of time that will become easy. Um, so when we're when we're trying to stay in our Kaizen zone, they have to be skill stretching sessions. We need feedback, right? So feedback for me is easy if I hit the wrong chord, if I play it wrong. Um, we need to maybe slow it down. Coaching is also helpful as well. You'll have somebody who'll point out something that you, you wouldn't have known and because you, you, you haven't got a fuller knowledge of the field, they just get spot something easily. Um, coaching. Um, and then we need to recover. Recovery is hugely important. So if my fingers are sore, I need to give them a day or so to rest. Um, we apply it to golf. Again, when it comes to golf, a lot of people play golf, but they don't practice golf. Okay, if you just play golf, You'll stay around this. You could play golf for 20, 30 years, but if you just play competitions one after the other, you hit a bad shot and you don't stop to analyze, why did that go wrong? If you're playing, if I'm playing a practice round of golf, if I hit a bad shot, I'll drop another ball and I'll hit it again. Now, it'll stick with my original ball, but I want to try and prove it. You've got to go to the driving range and try and figure out why did that ball go to the left? Why did that ball go to the right? Then you probably got to get some expert coaching as well again. Um, but just... Another technique just with the um, my own speaking. Every time I give a talk, I've adopted Jerry's process. Every time I finish a talk, uh, it doesn't matter where I am. And I did 244 last year. I have my 1% sheet that I bring with me. And I'll spend five, maybe I try and limit to five minutes uh, at the end of the day, thinking how could I have been 1% better today? Could I've told the stories better could I've interacted with the audience better, could I've set the room up, room set up, I've realized is so important. Um, and because my brain knows that I'm going to make myself fill it, fill it out, it's constantly scanning for tiny little improvements. And I could be in the middle of a workshop and something will pop into my head. And Stephen, to try and get, like sometimes students will go, how will you know it's 1%? You never know, it's, got, it's not going to be 1%, you know, precisely, but it's just the effort. And what you find is, you might find a 0.1% improvement most of the times, but then you'll find something that might be actually a 10% improvement. I've added a quiz to my workshop. And after I tell the resilience story, I give it to students or the audience, and I swear to God, high-level executives want to do this as well. They want the quiz, right? I'll have a packet of workers originals. And if you can answer a question, and I'll just throw them out to the audience uh, based on some of the earlier stories, uh, you get a workers original. And repeat the energy in the room goes up everybody's buzzing everybody's excited again and this could be at a point where we're maybe fading a little bit you know and that's been a huge improvement were those originals yeah and they're excited about that they absolutely i swear to god but i think Stephen, what it does <laughs> is maybe with students right if i go let's have a quiz you know a lot of them are too cool for school they're like they'll just sit there going 
they won't answer. You know, I'm not being a lick answering your man's question, right? But they can always say, I just answered it for the suite. And what you'll find is students, and uh, I'll throw them the suite, they'll catch the suite and they'll hand it to someone beside them because they don't even want the suite. They just want to sit and Yeah, You know, it's me, they want to answer the question. And probably what it does for me as well, it shows that they're paying attention. But I, I swear to God, executives want to win. High-level executives want to win. They want to show, I remember this, I know this. So that's been a huge improvement, but it came through reflection. And that's one of the most basic things is, how did that go today? What can I do to make it a little bit uh, better? A little. I, I was working with um, a company last year in, in London. And it's like a manufacturing, they develop pallets. But we came up, when it came to Kaizen for their staff, um, we had three words, right, for any process. How can we make it faster, better, and easier? And those are the three questions to be, to be in the cause. How can we make this faster, better, and easier? Seems simple. It's very simple. But it, it's all it takes is these reflections to pick good. I mean, they say questions are better questions, give better answers, and they really do. To sit there and go, right, and again, to go back to the uh, the resilience section, you know, sometimes we think things are impossible. If we go, okay, if we were to do it anyway, how would we do it? That gives us answers. And it takes time to ponder it, but you will absolutely. What I find is you start to then, as you go about your normal day-to-day life, the answers start to present themselves to you because it's in the sort of front, of, front part of your brain. So yeah, and if, you, if you're approaching with a positive outlook you're going to get a positive outcome if you come up come with that saying well we're never going to do it. it's not possible you're not even going to be thinking about them if you're thinking if we had to as you said if you had to do it how yeah. could you do it you you straight away you think of things now you still might have a negative idea in your head be yeah. like well I'd, I'd have to do that but but at least you're saying that it's a possibility for me I, I for me i wouldn't even necessarily say we have to do it i would say if we were to try how would we do it because we're just accepting. It. No, it is impossible. Yeah, yeah. It's possible, and we're not even going to do it. Or none of us are going to do it. But if we were to try, how might we do it? Yeah. And then people would say, well, you might do this, or you might do that, you might do this. And you go, so we add up some of these things here, it could help us get there. And then you start to research, well, how have other people done it? What can we on that 1% from? journey then. Again, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But again, it's, 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 it's a reflection. And again, it, and, it's, and it's then an attempt to practice and improve and to do these sessions that are difficult, right? To, to play golf, it's, it's a lovely social thing. And if you're anyway decent, you'll hit some good shots and that'll bring you back to the course. But if you want to reduce your handicap, you have to reflect and you have to improve. And those sessions in the driving range probably aren't that fun. You know, but um, they're what's required. And again, this come this is why it's sort of vital for us to um, that our vision is actually exciting to us. It's yeah, really- you mentioned you mentioned you have to go back to the why again. Um, yeah, on, really- on, on your uh, Instagram, I've seen one or two things about a breakthrough goal. Mm, okay. Um, I was probably at the time when I was listening to your talk in the school, maybe telling the kid to shut up. So what uh, can you tell me what the well, breakthrough goal is? Yeah, they're not too yeah. bad. They're not too bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it depends on the group. Yeah, depends that's on the for group. sure. Yeah. Um, but they know I, I had three groups there last year and they're absolutely brilliant. Um, but yeah, so I'm interviewing 
these ordinary people who achieved extraordinary things. And just something that as I interviewed these people, a common denominator that kept coming back. I'm interviewing these people. Uh, and they say, well, look, Stephen, long before I achieved this big, extraordinary thing, earlier in my life, I achieved something much smaller, right? Something that in the eyes of the world, you know, it probably wasn't a big deal, but, but to me, it was huge. But it gave me a big boost in confidence and it gave me the courage to dream bigger and bigger dreams. Now, I call that a breakthrough goal. And that's what I encourage everybody who I work with to do. To set and achieve a breakthrough goal. It's a short-term goal, something you can get done with maybe two or three months, but it's got to be something that forces you to grow. It can't be something you could get done today if you really, really pushed yourself. It's got to be something that forces you to grow or develop new skills. Learning an instrument is one. Like, I mean, the guitar, for example, was a breakthrough goal for me. I, I tried to learn the guitar for maybe the age of nine to 18. There was a guitar at home. I'd pick it up in phases, right? But my fingers would get sore. I'd get frustrated because I couldn't change a chord. And every time when I gave up, I would say the exact same thing. I would say, I'm just not one of those musical people. And I put the guitar down. Now, when I was 19, I was driving along my very first car. A song came on the radio and I just said, I've got to learn that song with the guitar. And I think what happened was the vision got a little bit clearer, a little bit more exciting. Um, it took me two or three months to learn the song, but I learned how to play it. Now I play the guitar pretty much every day. And, you know, um, it's I love it. It's like meditation. It relaxes me. And I and again, just we should be in our Kaizen song for just very few areas of our lives. The ones that we really want to improve. But most good enough is good enough. I really enjoy playing the guitar. And I wouldn't necessarily enjoy too much of being in the Kaizen zone in um, But I learned how to play that song. That was a breakthrough goal for me. Uh, and again, particularly having failed, having tried and failed again and again. Um and then you're going you know, to prove to yourself that that doubt that you had in your head was in yeah. fact a doubt and you start to think, well, what are other doubts do I have in my head? So it's essentially what you're saying is that the breakthrough goal is implementing them four things and seeing the result. Yeah. You see, what, what, what happens is people listening uh, who are still have maybe a bit of a fixed mindset, we're trying to shift you across to a growth mindset. If they're still resistant they're not going to commit themselves to some big long-term goal using this structure, using these principles. But if they commit themselves to a smaller one, something that they can get done within two or three months, they create a clear vision, they break it down to a plan of small steps, they have some solution-based questions at ready, and they've written down the reasons why they want their vision to become reality. And, and they put the continuous improvement strategies in place as well. They're reflecting, how could I have been a little bit better? Not much, but just a little bit better. When you achieve it, it gives you a boost in confidence. And then you go, right, I can achieve bigger things, more longer term things. Maybe you'll set yourself a goal that's six months. And then when you achieve that, you'll have grown in confidence. Set yourself something bigger that's a year long. And it just grows and grows and grows from there. Was there any um, was there any stories that stood out to you regarding the breakthrough goal or any of the maybe was it 60, you said 60 people you interviewed that like had a yeah. specific story that really, really um excited you? Okay. In terms of breakthrough goal? In terms of anything, breakthrough goal, which ones were significant to you? Um, well, there's there's one very specific one for the breakthrough goal, which is a guy called Simon Hutchinson, um, guy from Cavan, works as a carpenter, told me years ago he read a book by a guy called Mark Beaumont. And the book was all about the time that Mark cycled around the entire world. Right now, Simon read that and thought to himself, oh, my God, 
Imagine being the kind of guy who could cycle around the entire world, right? He said, I'd love to be one of those people, but I know I'm not. Put the book down and just got on with his life. Uh, a few years later, his cousin Ken happens to be a guy who's running the 32 Marathons Challenge with Jerry Duffy, who I mentioned earlier. What they did was they got lots of people to run with them into different counties to try and raise money for charity. So uh, Ken said to Simon, you know, would you be interested in, in running one of the marathons? Simon said on a whim, I'll do six. Right? I don't think he ever run a marathon before in his life. He wasn't a runner, wasn't that fib, but he committed to doing six. He told me he showed up for the very first marathon, somehow got through it. A few days later, joined the boys in a different county, somehow got through it. Halfway through the third marathon, right, not even the sixth one, he told me he had this dim realization that he was going to do it. He said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to finish all six of these marathons. And in doing that, I'll have done something that I would have thought was impossible for somebody like me. And he told me when he crossed the finish line for the sixth marathon, he said, it was exactly like you just said there. Uh, he started to ask himself, what else have I been telling myself I couldn't do that maybe, in fact, I can? And it was that six marathons in five weeks that just gave him the confidence to try and cycle around the entire world. It took him 160 days to do it, but he did it. He, he overcame so many insane obstacles. If people want to actually go onto my website, uh, stephenkiernan.ie, um, there's a Breakthrough Goal video series. Should have mentioned that actually. Right? That, that's actually where I thought I saw it, not Instagram. Yeah, that's where yeah, I saw it. Yeah, yeah that's story. Yeah, but that story's there. And there's a step by step guide for from each of the videos how you create a clear, exciting vision. Um, but just, just so I can give a couple of mentions to some of the other people I interviewed. Of course, love to hear um, it. Yeah, just, just, uh, just very briefly, just because uh, I think this gives uh, some larger context to some of the stuff. Because what I said was I, I interviewed 60 people. I asked them the same seven questions because they're trying to figure out what is it that they share in common. One of the people I interviewed, I only mentioned her briefly, an amazing lady called Caroline Casey. Uh, Caroline is a social entrepreneur. She's been legally blind from birth, but incredibly, she didn't realize it until she was 70. Right now, she's given a, it's it's amazing. It's it's just an incredible backstory. Um, she's a social entrepreneur now. She's had her the impact that she's had on people's lives is incredible, right? Six thousand blind people can see because of Caroline, right? You can go, she's she's uh, delivered a TED talk. It's called Looking Past Limits encourage people to watch it it's brilliant tells her whole story but one of the things she's working on now she works she basically promotes the case of disabled people particularly in the work in the workplace she's got um she's got a social enterprise called, it's called Fat, valuable 500 and their mission was to go to the 500 biggest companies in the world and to push the case of disabled people in the workplace right now it wasn't to say, would you give disabled people a job as some sort of a charitable thing, right? It was to promote the case and show the value that people who, who have a disability can bring to these companies and to their bottom line, to their profits. She talks about uh, disabled people being hugely educated. But one of the things that we, I think we still uh, suffer from is we will define uh, a disabled person by their disability when we don't really know. We'd say the blind girl, or the man in the wheelchair. Um, and that's the way it is for companies. They don't understand disability, so they fear it. Uh, and they don't really get a chance to meet, to you know, spend time with people and get see past the, you know, the disability to their many, many brilliant abilities. 
And that's what Caroline does now. And uh, she's got to all 500 companies now. And uh, she's an incredible lady. Um, but what she did, I think, was if you if you listen to her story, if you can read it in the book or maybe watch her TED talk in my book, um, you'll see that what Caroline did was she turned her weakness into her biggest strength. And she's used that to improve the lives of so many other people as well. It's just unbelievable. Um, PJ Gallagher, the comedian. Oh, yeah. I, I interviewed him and he's in, in Brilliant Mondays as the opening chapter. And when I interviewed PJ, he told me that he desperately wanted to be a comedian. He knew he wanted to be a comedian. Uh, he, he, thought, he said, everybody, he says, when you're in school, he said, everybody's either good at sports or they're academic. He said, I was good at neither. So the only thing I thought I might be able to do was talk in front of people. But he said, I was too petrified to get on a stage. And then his dad died uh, quite suddenly. I think he was around 23. And he said he realized that, you know, PJ said, I, I could die having never even tried to turn my vision into reality. And he said, as scared as he was still to get on stage, the idea of not even having tried was more terrifying. And he was able to push himself to get onto the stage and have the career that he's had so far. Um, so the, the key lesson that I kind of took away from PJ's um, interview, and that was another long one as well, you know, it was hours and hours, was you'll never be ready. Anybody who's waiting to be ready, you, you need to know now you'll never, ever be ready. And I say that the students, I go, you're 15. I'm sure a lot of you are thinking, I have this big dream. When I'm 25, then I'll be ready. No, you won't. If it's beyond your current comfort zone, it will still be on, beyond your current comfort zone when you're 25 you know I think that's, you, that's a great message if you, if you think i'd love to be a great singer but i'm 15 and i'm too shy too nervous to try trust me if you don't try you'll still be too nervous when you're 25 and 35 and 45 and 55 right the only way to do it is to try and uh, do it i always encourage people on a small scale you know i'd say to students you go oh, i'd like to be a musician and i'd say well how many can you play if you go, I'm working on a few songs. Say, why don't you learn how to play five songs really, really well, then bring your guitar into school and then play those songs in front of five of your friends and get some feedback from them. And it's not that you're supposed to be Ed Sheeran or Taylor Swift at that stage. This is just the beginning. And you get feedback off them and they say, well, I like this song. I didn't think that song suited your voice. And the guitar was a bit shaky, but it's pretty good, you know, and they'll encourage you. And then you may be playing in front of a little bigger audience and you work your way into pubs and then you're, the stages just get bigger and bigger and bigger. So I, I'm a big fan of starting as small as possible, but you have to start. And that's what the message with PJ's thing was. Um, John Lonergan, have you ever heard of him? No, never. John was the governor of Mountjoy Jail for 25 years. And that was probably my favorite interview. Because he totally changed my view of prisoners. You know, growing up, you know, sight says people in prison are bold. And they've been bold, so they need to be treated like dirt when they're in prison. Because that's how they'll learn their lesson. But John said, look, and again, this, this really hammered home to me the power of example. And the importance, I suppose, of surrounding yourself around people who are doing the things that you want to do. That's very valuable, very strategic move to try and help you get to where you want to go. But he talked about how the majority of the uh, people in Mountjoy Jail are from the same five or six areas around Dublin. And he said it's generation after generation of people who've been marginalised uh, by society. Um, 
by people who, uh, so you're in prison and you got a criminal record. It's difficult to go out and get a job. And so it's just generation after generation. Um, and he said, when they come into prison, so people say, treat them like dirt. He says, I have to do the opposite. I have to treat them the way that I want them to go back out in society and treat other people. And he said, if they've never been shown a great, a good way to live in life, he said, we've got to provide that example to them. So he, he used to put on plays. They used to have a lot of prisoners who go out and do work in the community. Um, but one of the things that really stood out for me was John was telling me uh, during the Special Olympics, the 2003 games were in Crow Park, were in Ireland. And at the opening ceremony, um, the prisoners were making flags and like bunting and all the sort of decorations for the opening ceremony. And he said that with about three weeks to go, he says hello to the prisoners, look, we're not going to have time to finish them all. We're not going to get it done. We're going to need to get a help from an outside source. And they said, no way, John, this is our baby. We're going to get it done. And he said, they will work morning, noon and night. And he said, for three weeks, we would bring them up their breakfast, their lunch, their dinner, and they just spend the whole day working there. And he said, when the, when the opening ceremony uh, happened, he said, and they didn't get any help. He said, it was on a projector. They were watching it live. And he said, I was just watching these prisoners and they could see all the decorations, everything that they'd done. They could see how amazing, how happy everybody was at the ceremony. And he said, I could see grown men cry. And he said, for some of them, it was the first real positive impact or positive contribution that they'd maybe made in society. And he said, a lot of them were changed forever because of that feeling. And they facilitated that. So John, um, sort of, again, showed me the power of example. And again, that was a common theme that I noticed. One of the questions I had was, who was the biggest influence in shaping your life and why? And again, it was all about how that person acted. It was usually a relative. It was rarely a famous person. Or that. It was usually somebody around them and how they acted. Not what they said to them, not what they preached, but how they lived their own lives. And... So that, again, at the start of the book, I have a quote, you become the average of the five people you spend your most time, the most time with. So I think people should be mindful of and go, if this is where I want to go, how can I get around those kinds of people? Um, very I, I, I said that to a student today. I was saying, you know, two lads missing and one was more so. I said, if you, you will be the product of the people you surround yourself. If you keep, who did you turn up late to class with? The yeah. student day. Who do you get caught messing with student day? I said, if you are going to be around student day all the time, you'll become yeah. student day. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's, you know, some kids, they're more malleable than others. And if they're around people who are doing sort of great things, they'll, they'll do great things. If they're around messers, they'll mess as well. You know, uh, and there's a time, there's a time and a place for a bit of devilment in school. Of course, as well. of course. Uh, I understand. And, uh, and it's not, um, and it's not even that, you know, what I notice is uh, sometimes messers have a good force of will and that when they go out into the big bad world, they will force their way into success, whereas the other ones who are sort of chatting to them won't have that sort of confidence and they'll just be, you know, to the side who, and didn't get a good education that they could have basically because they're messing. Um, but Nikki Byrne, I'm going to wrap things up as well. So, uh, Nikki right. Byrne from Westlife. So I interviewed... Uh, Nikki, again, that was another monster interview, five or six hours. And again, what stood out with Nikki was just his level of ambition. And his he, he talked about Ryan Seacrest 
You heard of him? Yeah. He's like they say, he's got he's the host of American Idol. He's got a big, huge radio show in America. He's got a big predict production company. And Nikki was saying, you know, I see people like Ryan Seacrest and think, well, if he can do it, why can't I do it too? And whereas I think the rest of us are more naturally the opposite. We're like, well, there must be something special about that person that we never even try. Nikki, I think, was the epitome of the growth mindset. I can't do it now, but I can grow into the kind of person who can. And he didn't see the limitations. And again, it sort of showed me, in terms of teams, uh, the value of group dynamics and different um, qualities that bring, bring to a group. And you look at sort of Westlife and you go, okay, Shane and Mark were the two major singers. And without them the band probably wouldn't have got off the ground. But then you have a look at somebody like Nicky and you think back in the day when they're playing Vicar Street, you could have Shane and Mark on, this is amazing. This is brilliant, you know, whereas Nicky's saying, yeah, yeah, let's play Crow Park and let's play Tree Arena and then let's play Crow Park and let's keep raising the bar, you know. Um, and I heard as well, uh, Keen, uh, he was very much almost like management. He would deal with, uh, with Louis. And, uh, you know, they sort of let the lads know, here's what we're doing, here's how we're moving forward. So they all had these qualities. You're a big Westlife fan, yeah? What? You're a big Westlife fan. They're not bad, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you don't, get, you don't get to where they are by, by luck, you know? And they Absolutely. obviously work very hard. Again, a lot of people look at that and say, ah, they had a follow on it. Like, again, you said that everyone had their little niche in the, in the band and probably worked very hard. And, you know, like Nikki was telling me that, He'd be constantly uh, looking at other up and coming bands, and you go, "Well, sure, they could hold it. They could hold the tune. They're good looking lads. These young ones are gonna fancy, right?" But he would say to them, "They're on the way up. We're 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 done. If we don't keep produce a good album, now we're done, lads." You know, and he again, he was using the stick there rather than the carrot. You know, they'd already had the carrot. You know, the carrot wasn't gonna do. It, it was fear that was keeping them going there at one stage. But they came back. They reinvented themselves again and came back. Uh, years and years later, again to play in these stadiums, you know. Uh, so definitely isn't luck, you know, strategic and the dynamic. So that's pretty much to summarize everything is, you know, to look for clear. First of all, is to realize that people who are doing extraordinary things or exciting things that you're going, I'm, I'd love to do that. There are people just like all of us. And if they can do it, we can do it too. Want to try and have a, a clear, exciting vision. Exciting to you again, doesn't not something somebody else is pushing on you or saying you should do this or that. Uh, it's got to be yours. Uh, try and come up with the best plan of small steps you can. Don't worry about having every step of the way, just the first few steps, and you'll see the rest as you go. Third was resilience. Focus on solutions. Expect obstacles to appear. They'll appear for everyone. Don't take it personally. You're not unlucky. That's just the way it is. Focus on solutions. Have your compelling reasons why you want your vision to become reality. Uh, and the last, continuously improve a tiny little bit, but over a long period of time. And to really give people proof that this works, I encourage them to set and achieve a breakthrough goal. Something Stephen, you can get done yeah. in two, three months. It's been an absolute pleasure. And it's actually been genuinely an honor to talk to you because, as I said, one of my inspirations when I, when I, heard you up in Bremore and everything just resonated and I said this man's making things that seem so hard so simple you know yeah, so yeah. 
from everyone in Breemore and myself, thank you very much. I appreciate that, Stephen. And uh, I want to wish you uh, good luck on your journey with the podcast. Yeah. And I hope that uh, maybe you can use some of these ideas to clarify your vision, break it down to small steps. And I suppose just reflect after every podcast and think about how could I have been a tiny little bit better? And look at the other podcasts. I think podcasts are the future. I don't think they'll be a fad. But look at somebody like Joe Rogan. Uh, it took years and years and years, you know? And if you if you enjoy it then, and it's your vision, you won't mind putting those years in. 100%. Yeah. 100%. So, Thank you very much again, Stephen, and best of luck. You're all booked out for the next year, are you? What's the story with your yeah, workshop? Oh, sorry. If anybody, yeah, if anybody wants to buy the book, Brilliant Mondays, uh, you can buy it on uh, stephenkiernan.ie. Uh, if anybody wants to book me for a talk, I am very busy. Um, so I got a lot of sort of repeat stuff. But um, yeah, if anyone wants to book me for a school or a company, again, you can contact me through um, Stephen at stephenkiernan.ie is my website. Or sorry, my email address. Uh, you can find me on that. So Beautiful. Thank you very Thank much you. again, Stephen. And I'll see you soon, hopefully. Yeah, cheers. Thanks, Stephen.